Greetings, everyone. Good evening. Um, it's nice to be here in chilly Boston um, after being in chilly California, but actually very wet. A lot of atmospheric rivers there. Um, we've had um, this last few months. I was actually leaving just as one was hitting, and um, yeah, a lot of flooding. And so. Anyway, so I'm still arriving in this space here on the East Coast and uh, have been here quite a few times, Cambridge Insight, so it's, it's uh, just appreciating what a very solid building you have. <laughs> very warm, very uh, um, supportive, it's a beautiful asset and for the Dharma and for all the people that come through here and uh, live, you know, able to practice here in this space. Yeah, so I I chose this subject because mindfulness in the apocalypse, which sounds pretty dramatic, but because I actually like to just put those two words together. Um, and it's a, I think about it a lot anyway, of course, you know, contemplate both of these themes, uh, the Dharma, um, both not just the formal dharma of Buddhism, but the deeper dharma of reality. Of course, the dharma doesn't really belong to Buddhism, although often thought of like that. The Buddha realized dharma, realized re this reality, this unbounded, Ajahn Chah called the living dharma, that which is actually speaking all the time, intuitively guiding all the time, not just in the sutras and the books and the formulas of the Buddhist canon and so on. So this dharma, both the practice and the lineages and the forms of it, but also the formless nature of its unfolding as a deep intelligence, prajna intelligence, panya, it's wise, reflective, knowing that has a whole different fulcrum around which we experience the world from that dimension than perhaps a separative cognitive consciousness which is always separating out between the fulcrum of an individual self around which everything oscillates in relationship to other, the whatever we're focusing on as other outside. So in a way the, the living dharma, the intuitive parajna paramita is that which is before the mind spins out into the 10,000 dreams that we dream and stories. It is this pure knowing essence. And it is really within that alliance, within this fundamental nature of the heart, that this Dharma, that there can be real quantum shifts that can happen and understanding. So that's why I'm interested in putting this word next to the, this big word apocalypse which means in some ways the ending of a world as we know it, as we've known it, the ending of a world, a civilization or a world that, has, that we have assumed has continuity and stability. But it also means, of course, revelation, unpeeling, unveiling, seeing beneath the layers, seeing beneath um, and underneath the assumptions that we've made about the world that we've co-created or been part of or shaped by. So just having these two sit next to each other, they don't usually sit next to each other, these two words. Mindfulness is often, well, it's extracted really from 
a larger context of Dharma practices. It's just sort of one pivotal aspect of the practice, but you can't really exist independently from many other co-supporting factors. But this mindfulness is often sometimes tending towards um, orientated towards self, towards self-development, self-improvement, self-understanding, being mindful, being a mindful person. And in many ways, sometimes we can interpret and run the understanding of the Dharma through our self-orientation because that's how we're shaped. We experience ourselves very much as an independent, separate self on the whole. And that is a truth, that is a reality, but it's not the whole reality. Of course, we're so woven into a seamless world as well, which we're interwoven with. So is can mindfulness expand out to also include and be part of and essential to this larger web of life? And of course, not only human life, but the whole sacred web of life, which means everything that we're interwoven within and not just the worlds of the seen and the known, other, other realms, other beings, subtle beings, form, you know, elemental beings, plants, rocks, trees, and so on, animals, creatures, fish, mountains, but also unseen beings, cosmo- cosmologies of beings, and so that we begin to broaden out as not just Yes, we are individuals in our individual path, but we're also part of a cosmology. We also are that too, and part of the web of life, participants in a greater web of life. And it's not necessarily the way that we culturally place ourselves in our modern, about modern culture, of course, many cultures do have historically, but in the way that we're shaped in a more monochrome, monodimensional cognitive, rational approach to life through our separative consciousness so that we see things outside of us. You know, we're looking at nature, we're looking at these things like the climate and the destruction of the ecosystems and everything that we now know about as something that we're looking at outside (laughs) and then thinking, what am I going to do about that? (laughs) Rather than seeing it as us and we're in it, it is us, it is living in us, it is an expression of us, Um, it is a reflection and a mirror back to us. Um, So that's a kind of, so it's not just about what are we going to fix out there in our green technologies, but what are we going to actually do about consciousness itself, our indwelling human and the values that emerge from how we understand ourselves and what we understand ourselves to be. Because if we, you know, that changes the picture somewhat. Because it means then there's, it's not just about the solutions of the fixing, it's about a fundamental, deeper, radical reorientation within us that we're being called to, that this time is calling us to if we are going to somehow have some possibility of something, maybe surviving. And I think we're now at a point when we have to understand that there's a lot that will be lost. Maybe all, we don't know, but for certain, we are sort of 
like rapidly moving past the safety guardrails of what enables a sustainable life on this in this earth very fragile earth very fragile biosphere i don't know what is about 12 miles or something that we breathe within and then beyond that it's just cold hard space very fragile soil it's just just as i was driving out in the early taxi to the airport i don't really like to fly these days for obvious reasons but you know it's felt important to come here for various things around all of this but I was noticing a lot of the land when Sonoma County, where I am, has been given over from, in fact, it's beautiful apple orchards, ancient apple orchards around us. Driving out the other day and seeing that there's, that, that acres of them had been cut down for the vineyards. And then driving out in the early morning, just as it was dawn, all of the flooding and the topsoil being washed from the vineyards because there's nothing to hold them anymore. There's nothing, there's no hedges, there's no hedgerows. There's, you know, so I was thinking, yeah, do we prefer wine or water? You know, because it's going to come on. You know, we, we, you know, so what does this mean? You know, that the loss of topsoil, the loss of a breathable biosphere that's so fragile. Um, I was just looking at this in my home country of UK this uh, decimation of of old growth forests for ridiculous projects you know no no thought to this that this is us we're actually decimating ourselves so what is it what is this veneer what is this veneer between you know how can we soften and open that veil that keeps that sense of separation as we look on to our world being dismembered and somehow wondering how to respond to that and moving between every inner response we can possibly imagine, every feeling that can be felt from terror and horror to denial and freeze to outrage and grief and perhaps if we haven't felt those yet, we've still got to really awaken a bit more <laughs> to understand what we're in now um, and to understand that, uh, you know, it really many doors are beginning to close. So this is an interesting moment. And what does it mean for us as practitioners? What does it mean for us as those that are not only doing these practices, but maybe teaching them? Uh, what does it mean for us as human beings, as families, as communities, where we're all caught in this system that's dependent on energy systems and ways of being and living that are, in fact, the very causes of what's undermining our ability to be in any kind of sustainable world. And the complete conundrum of that, you know, it reminds me of when the Buddha, I think about a lot when one of the stories, as you know, when um, the Buddha took on Angulimala, who was a serial killer, and um, everyone was terrified of this guy. He was actually, the original story was interesting, and I won't go into it, but you can source it. But, you know, he was a brilliant student that got betrayed. And out of this great rage of betrayal, he decided to become this collect fingers from his victims, make a mala, it's Angulimala, a mala is like a necklace of these fingers, wanted to kill, I think it was a thousand people, or a hundred people, I can't remember, anyway, big, huh? 
thousand? Was it a thousand? I, I said four thousand. That sounds like a lot, you know. But he was determined. He was on it, and um, so he was the local um, person that everyone was terrified of, and no one could quell him. They, they said that the armies would go out at the time, and they, everyone was terrified. Great athlete. And so the Buddha saw with his divine eye that Angiyamalini completed his necklace and he just needed one more person to take their life and he realized he was going to take the life of his mother. And that's, that is actually out of the karmas that are created. Most of them are mutable, but some are very hard to dissolve. Some karmas are very hard, have very hard consequences and hard to dissolve. And taking, this is the classical teaching, taking the life of a parent is one of them. So the Buddha realized that Angulimala actually had potential, even though he had done all this, he still had potential because he had this root. He had this root at being a very brilliant uh, student of the Dharma before he went down the wrong path. And so the Buddha went out to the forest and to stop Angulimala. And Angulimala saw the Buddha and just, oh no, I'll take this guy's life. So he started running, he was very strong, started running, and the Buddha was just walking. And Angiyamala couldn't catch up with him, and in the end he just screamed, like, stop, to the Buddha. And the Buddha just turned slowly and said, I have stopped, when will you stop? And he got, you know, that that moment, Angiyamala, it was a radical moment for him. Obviously, if the Buddha, if, you, if the Buddha said that to you, it'd probably be for you too. You know, for any of us, it was like stop, just stop. And um, so this stop, you know, somehow, why can't we stop? <laughs> you know, I mean, I know why we can't stop. We have to put food on the table. We have to, but somehow we have to stop. You know, we have to find a way to stop together, to stop the madness, to stop this momentum, to, you know, it's a complicated thing, you know, it's simple and complex at the same time. So to even open the mind into that, because we have to stop on mass, you know, it's if there's a lot of people trying to stop. They have in, in Britain, going into Europe, maybe over here, uh, this movement grown out of the Extinction Rebellion, which is just stop oil. So they sit in front of cars and people get very angry on on streets, you know, in London, whatever. And so people have started dragging them off the streets, you know, like or just trying now they're walking slowly to slow people down. But the whole message is to stop. And now they're being arrested. And now what's happening is that um, they're often being arrested without charges or being held in prison. And now they are, it's illegal, it's, they're trying to make it illegal. I don't know if they pass that, they're just burning up all rights for demonstrations in the UK. It's pretty getting pretty fascistic over there, governments and so on. But they're not allowed to use climate as a defense. They're not allowed to, so those that are, are held in contempt of court and being in prison. So there's these forces, these enormously powerful forces at a moment when we we were like thinking we're on a pathway after the Paris Agreement, on a global agreement, and it's all seemed to have just kind of taken a nosedive. There's not that there's not some positive shifts, if there are, there's some very big legislations that have gone through, but it's not serious enough. Yeah, so that 
we now have the doubling down of, you know, the Willow Project was just signed off of um, President Biden, which means that this vast expanse of Antarctica land, this was it Arctic, sorry. Anyway, up there, <laughs> down there, up there is up there. This huge wilderness preserve that's going to be extracted from. So we can't really stop somehow, we, and it's because not just it's not the it's the government. There's these forces that are doubling down, but it's also our consciousness is entwined with these forces. We are colluding with these forces. We, we are, you know, bound to because we're in a system that we're kind of all caught in. So breaking the pattern, breaking breaking set. It's extremely hard to break set. It's 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 threatening to the ego structure. There's 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 um, someone that I've been listening to, Timothy Snyder, who's a historian from I think it's Yale or Harvard. And sorry, I haven't got all the data down in my mind. I I just as an aside, I, I it's interesting as like however much data we listen to and information about what's going on, it doesn't seem to be doing it. It doesn't seem to be translating into change. But this this going back to Timothy Snyder's one of his specialities is um, lecturing on fascism and stopping fascism. And in a certain way, that is the political sphere is the gateway in many ways to our ability to change what is happening environmentally and around climate, which is a very difficult area for Buddhists because we don't really speak about that very much. But however, to not divert, digress too much as I lose my thread, but Timothy Snyder wrote a very helpful little handbook, which I actually have here, I think. Oh yes, I did bring it. Um, because I do think it's part of our curriculum. Uh, 20 lessons from the 20th century on tyranny. And one of the things he talks about is breaking set, 20 things that we can do. And he talks about the example of Rosa Parks when she moved from the back of the bus to the front of the bus. I mean, it's just a few steps, but it was like a radical and scary moment. It must have been for her. But something really deeply moved her to take that movement and break the set, break the norm break the spell and so it's that discomfort uh, sort of an it's an invitation into what happens when you break the set and you're not comfortable you're not in the social bubble you're not in the spell of agreement and so this is you know the 20 lessons 20 things that have to be done that we need to do if we're serious about actually shifting our trajectory and it's not just about what the powers that be, although there's a lot about that, it's about what we we are part of this consciousness. And so really it's about everything we can do and the more that we can do together, the more we increase the odds. It's that simple. It's really down to that now. It's not, we can't go back. There's a lot that will be lost. There's a lot in free fall. We're going past a lot of tipping points, I think about four or five out of nine that are major tipping points we already like so there's consequences and um so what do we care about this is what do we care about what is our values what how can we you know when you go into this space it brings up a lot of denial confusion 
um, frozenness, fear, overwhelm? How can we feel everything that we need to feel and yet still keep moving beyond? I do believe the Dharma can really help us with that. The Dharma can really allow us to feel what we feel and yet know that's not the end of what we are and what the potential is of any moment in any situation. So yeah, the other day I got a call from a friend in the Israeli Sangha who we've been quite a lot uh, there uh, teaching and being involved with both Israeli and the Palestinian uh, group that has um, been building a mindfulness center in the West Bank. And they are absolutely terrified because if anyone's been following that story, that they've suddenly found themselves in a in a far, far right-wing um, takeover of the government, which means the dismantling of their Supreme Court, the, the um, burning up of all rights, the, the um, undermining of women's rights, the you know, so the, the the playbook, it's there's like a one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> we're seeing it in Florida, we're seeing it in Texas, we're seeing it. But they haven't didn't ex- didn't expect to see it there. They didn't expect to see it in for themselves. And and it's happening very quickly and there was a, a lot of fear. A lot of, you know, and you know, will you meet, have a talk. So it was like contemplating this this speed with which the world that we've been in and the assumptions we've made that democracy will always be there, that this sort of freedoms will always be there, that the rights that have been so hard fought for that we won't regress <laughs> back to the, where are we going, the 1800s, is it? <laughs> you know, that this is a, isn't a noun, it's a living verb and it's not outside of the Dhamma. I mean, the Buddha advised generals, he engaged in trying to stop wars, he engaged in trying to mediate water rights, you know, he lost sometimes, he tried to stop his own people being slaughtered by another another group, another tribe that were, there's a whole backstory to that, and he tried three times and he wasn't able to stop, but it, he tried, you know, some things you can't do, some things you can. And so, you know, I was just, you know, I, I didn't really have time. They wanted me to write something and I didn't really. So I said, well, look, right now you just have to get out on the streets with everyone else because once these things settle and start to become legalized, it gets much more entrenched and harder. This is in this moment. This is the moment to really get out and join all the other citizens. You're a citizen. And and so, you know, this, this, these are these moments and we can't, you know, a lot hangs in the balance. So to put the word apocalypse is to say this is what we're in. We're in the ending of a world as, we, as we've known it. And it's been, you know, we've been watching that and it's happening. And there's a, there's a certain disbelief. I think part of the difficulty is like this can't be happening. <laughs> you know and yet we were watching it it's like a slow train smash you know it's but it's happening quickly you go no i can't be believing i'm looking at this um and yet you know there's an erosion of the very things that even enables the dharma to grow and thrive which is has to, can only really exist in a more dem- dem- democratized democratized kind of society in a society that allows for religious freedom, that allows for various rights to operate, 
and those can very quickly be eroded. So these are all entwined, you know, the response to the environment, the response of understanding who we are. It's a moment, we could say it's a moment when you come to the ending of a civilizational myth, if you like, that we've been in for maybe the colonial era and so on and on forth, this idea that we can extract endlessly from nature, extract from other plunder and extract from other um, more vulnerable communities and countries that aren't able to defend themselves and their lands, that we can, you know, sustain a level of growth um, endlessly uh, I can't believe that the uh, the the opposition in the UK at the moment, opposition party, is still talking about their whole thing is, yeah, we're going to grow, 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 and it's like, really, where are we going to go? <laughs> you know, I think it says they say it takes six planets for us all to live at the level that we're all living. You know, where are we going to grow to? You know, so it's like we have to demand the messages. They're not giving the messages, those holding holding these positions. We have to demand the messages change. We have to change the message. So this this um yeah, this this willingness really to shift the set. To understand that we're not bystanders, I think, is the main thing. That at this moment when a, when the myths of what we've lived by, the unveiling, it's like we've seen, you know, seen really what the US is built on, see what the colonial project was built on. You know, it, perhaps it was a, 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 for those that were beneficiaries of it, those communities that weren't decimated by it, those countries, those peoples. Um, you know, it's 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 like living in a bubble, and that bubble starts to break, and then you have to be confronted with the shadow. You know, the enormous violence committed to grow this American empire, in the same way, of course, in Britain, British still haven't really come anywhere near to terms with the enormity of the impact of their colonial project. And the cruelty and the has a sort of self romanticized ideal which we're trying to get back to <laughs> in the brexit you know it's all it's all such an enormous amount of nostalgia and distortion and gaslighting as to the reality of what actually is um, so all of this in some ways it's terrible to be plunged in the way that we have been into such levels of shadow the shadows of what we're actually really, what white supremacy is really dependent on is a massive amount of violence towards people of color and oppression in so many ways. And in some ways, violence even internally, um, that's internalized as well. I saw living in South Africa, you know, it took a long time, a little while, not a long time, but to see what is the internal violence for you know the those that benefited from apartheid, white people, you know in some ways are seeing being in a deep rural area the decimation, 
the removals from land of the African, the local Zulu community we worked within, the, the migrant labor systems, the, the complete post-apartheid society, whole communities without completely under-resourced. Say when the AIDS pandemic hit, we were there in right at the heart of that, how completely under-resourced they were to meet that moment. It was harder to see the wounding in the in the white community because they seemed and there was so much guilt as well. It's harder to to understand that there's a certain kind of price to pay. And this this way of being uh, the apartheid means this literally separated out. But how to actually be a beneficiary of that system? You have to separate out from what is really felt. You have to sort of anesthetize the empathy, the feeling experience. And so there's a sort of like frontier mentality of harshness and layeredness and armoredness. And so a, a lot of our society has embodied that, this split, this split from what's felt. If we really feel what we really feel, then we couldn't do what we do towards not only other humans, but towards animals, towards the creatures, towards the fish, towards all of it, <laughs> you know. So the, so the work of the Dharma is not to use the Dharma to split even further into some transcendent abiding where we don't feel anything, sometimes it sounds like that, but to actually reclaim the depth of our humanity, our sensitivity, to feel the utter heartbreak of this moment. And to know we don't really have a solution. And that's okay. I mean, we have lots of solutions, but, you know, we're not imp implementing them quick enough. And they're not as deep enough because they're not still talking about our participation as conscious beings and the changes we need to make to demand, to demand, not to demand what we feel is our right to demand from nature. without taking into any account that nature is actually a living intelligence, a sacred goddess that we've desecrated. So there's a lot of reclamation here. There's a lot of both sobering up from this myth of our civilization. There's a lot of being really mindful in a moment of great danger because when a civilizational myth shatters, a world that we've known starts to break apart and releases what it's releasing in that time, a, kind of like a psychotic break from reality. People can't handle it and they're going kind of crazed. It's like a crazedness. And it's being normalized. You know, truth is lies, lies is truth. This is, uh, it's our, the onus is on us is to feel what is true and to speak it and to hold sanity, to hold ground. You know, where so many people are slipping away from that. There's some kind of, that there is no out. So, you know, in the Dharma, the teaching of the mindful presence, Ajahn Chah would say this practice is about preparation for when when it really means when you really have to show up. 
you know, this practice that we do, sitting, breathing, you know, it seems pretty boring, you know, but it is what we do, whether we're facing the end of a civilization, as we've known it, <laughs> things, things dismembering, whether or whether it's just a very difficult mind state, it's the same practice. What we're meeting is maybe vastly different in the in the quality and the quantity and the intensity. But it is this ability to hold ground in the face of whatever and to know that whatever we're holding ground for is not the ultimate expression of what we are. That what we are is the heart itself has this the so Buddha said this deathless nature, this amata dhamma, it has this adamantine diamond-like indestructible nature. So to really know that, not just as a theory, but to know it as an indwelling refuge is the work of, the, of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless, the Buddha said, not just to uh, stress reduction. <laughs> Although it can do that too, you know, to some degree. Mindfulness is the flood stopper. The Buddha called it stopping the flood of the generation, the projections of the mind. From a mind that's unseasoned, a mind not in tune with the reality, a mind that's in the spell of delusion and separative consciousness. So, yeah, this is a, something together to... Do this deeper work together of reclamation, waking up from the spell, holding ground, and standing up together. In any ways that we possibly can. The other day, well, a while, a short while ago, I was with a um, friend from Denmark, and um, she was a retreat we were doing a few years ago, and he was telling me a story, his true story, about an, a, an early explorer in the beginnings of the last century in Greenland, who was half Danish and half Inuit, indigenous. And they were out with a hunting party to track down polar bears. And they were out on the vastness of the ice flows. And they came across a polar bear and they kind of were beginning towards like moving in and surrounding this bear and the bear was surrounded and threatened and what the bear did um, and this guy was sort of like I guess he had some sort of weapon was coming up close and the bear just with the front paw lifted the whole body up and just smashed on the ice and as the bear smashed the ice broke, and then this guy and the bear fell through the ice into the freezing water. And the person 
I can't remember the guy's name, this explorer talks about, and I actually, my friend told me this story, I said, is this, and I actually looked it up and it was, it was the case. They fell into the ice there, there and there was this moment, I mean, was obviously they didn't have long because it was so cold, when they just immediately were trying to move away from each other. But then there was this moment when they just couldn't and they were just looking at each other while they were under the water. So I guess it was one of those split second moments that became quite timeless because of the nature of the intensity of it. But here they were and they and this guy talks about this explorer. It was like looking so deeply into the soul of another being completely and this being looking back and then recognizing themselves and each other it was something like just the pure recognition that they were completely equal in that moment completely the same this is completely veils apart and there they were just and they were struggling at the same time moving to try and get out and they were somehow helping each other and they were being pulled from the top because they had some of the people helping and they kind of both got pulled out out of this ice hole and the bear ran one way and the human ran the other way. And when my friend told me this story, I sort of felt like, I, I feel like this is how we now have to see each other. It's like we're in that water and we have to see not only each other but everything without the veils without the projections of the mind without the old stories that we think we're still living in uh, without this way that we speak to ourselves about how everything is going to be whatever we think it is we have to be like that woken up to realize we're not in that story anymore we're not in those dreams anymore you know, there's something else happening. We're falling through the ice. And we have to now see each other very real in a very real way and help each other get out of this ice hole. <laughs> and, you know, I believe the Dharma can bring that us to that because the Dharma is about unveiling the layers of the projections of the mind. So coming back and seeing how, at the essence, how do we create this separative consciousness because it's, this is the heart of where we've gone off track. I remember in southern Africa again where the San people, so-called Bushmen, San people, their lands, called themselves the first standing there people. And where we were, where we started the small Damagiri Center, all the mountains around there, the Uklamba, Drakensberg Mountains, were filled with their paintings and their expressions of the cosmos. And the paintings of, in that very mountain, Umvileni Mountain, where the little center is, where we, we found and stayed and lived and so on for many decades, actually. That center, that in that there was a, a painting of the of one of the shamans wrestling with the being living in that mountain and uh, they, the and they would capture that being because that being controlled the weather and they would help direct the weather so hence it's called umvuleni which means place of rain or place of unusual weather patterns which it still had around it and so um although they were decimated by the 
by the uh, colonization in the most horrific ways. Still, there are communities. There's still communities, but there's the presence and spirit felt very alive in those wilderness areas, in particular. But someone that had that I knew that had worked a lot with that community was talking about an elder, um, an elder son, woman, and one of her comments was she was just reflecting on our modern civilization and just said, you know. You guys, you're so off track, you don't even know there's a track. You're just so, you don't even know, you know, that there is actually a path, a track. So it's, we have to feel, and I'm reminded again of the ancient peoples, you know, how they would feel that track through their connection with nature. And like the Kogi people, have you ever seen their documentaries? The message to the younger brother and Aluna. They're really worth watching. They come from the, the high mountains of Colombia, one of the few peoples not to be colonized in the era of Spanish conquistadors. And they kept their traditions alive, which were the young, the, 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 the young born ones the, growing up that would be the elders, the shamans of the tribe, they would be held in there, they were kept in the dark for many, many years. They would, so they start to grow an extra sensory perception where they would feel what they call the thread. They would tune into the thread of what holds them to mother nature so they could communicate and connect. So they would feel it's a feeling, it's not a thought, it's not like a projection of the mind, it's a direct, it's our direct connection, this thread. And then, they talk about how everything is threaded together and the sacred sites are threaded into the oceans, the mountains, the forests. So there's just this whole web of energetic connection, which of course has been completely decimated and desecrated. But it is that reconnecting for us all with this thread, you know, that we lost the thread to our belonging as part of this participatory beings in this cosmos in this sacred world, this is world. This is a sacred. It's not. It's, we desecrated reclamation of the sacred, reclamation of heart, reclamation of sensitivity, in a culture that has demanded that we cut away from what's felt. Reclamation of our feeling. So a meditation that reclaims, not trying to cut away and move out and up and out, but coming down. As Ajahn Chah would say, coming like an earthworm. He said, don't try and be a Buddha or Bodhisattva. If you've got to be anything, be an earthworm. At least they're useful. They go into the ground and they, actually they are incredibly useful. They make these incredible tunnels and, you know, all sorts of other, you know, we would be in trouble without the earthworm. But the point was, you know, it's wonderful to be a Buddha and Bodhisattva. If you can be, that's great. But the earthworm, he was saying, is like, you know, to go down through what seems to be not very appealing to us, to be with the dukkha, to see suffering is actually the pathway to liberation. That to, as the Buddha taught, that to, dukkha is not a drag, it is a doorway. And now we have a massive doorway and the collective level. So there's a breakdown happening, but there's also something we have to attend to. The messages are coming 
so quick and fast for us that are dukkha. Can we take this practice of mindfulness? Can we take this, everything that we've learned, not just for ourselves and we're swimming around in our reactivity and our overwhelm, but can we together take this to meet this moment in strength, in joy, in beauty, in love, whatever the outcome is. We don't do it for the outcomes they are beyond our control, but we do it to plant the seeds for the future, to grow the seeds. And if we all abdicate from that, then we won't have a beautiful garden. We'll have destruction. I mean, there are forces of destruction. Like I was just this morning, I saw a tweet from, because I track quite closely what's happening over in the UK. <laughs> just, and there's like one of the towns that I lived near in Plymouth where I did my actually my training in mental health and I was doing the therapy training. And um, it's beautiful. It's a seaside town. Well, of course, Plymouth, Plymouth. <laughs> you know where they came from. <laughs> so anyway, back in the original Plymouth. And there's something happening. It's like it's like the orcs in uh, the Lord of the Rings. They're just the the Tory government's just going out and just they've just got this thing about just cutting down all the trees, you know. And people are trying to like, you know, like live in them and hang on to them, and they're just arresting them. And it's just become like this this like irrational, destructive force almost for the sake of it. So in the middle of this beautiful town area where there has beautiful old trees, in the morning people woke up, they were all cut down, hundreds of them. I, I can't understand the reason. I don't even I don't even know if they're... It's just this... There just seems to be a cycle. Like how much can we destroy of human rights, animal rights, environmental rights, women's rights, gay rights... You know, how much can we push peoples that, that you know, back into the 1800s into feudal enslavements? And, you know, how much can, you know, there's these, they're, they're very real forces. And if we don't stand to meet them uh, in any ways we can, if we don't find our truth, if we don't find our ground, then, you know, it's... Um, it's important. The Buddha did it. The Buddha stood up. The Buddha, people try to kill him. You have to remember that sometimes it's like you forget that he was a systems change person. He changed the systems. And uh, it wasn't popular. So it's, uh, you know, this is part of our Dharma legacy to have these conversations to not think they're not outside the Dharma. As was mentioned in a little bit of bio that uh, I got this from Condor Mason, sent Tara Brock and myself this text message before, after when Roe overturned, over, Roe versus Wade got overturned, which was a very shocking moment. Condor said, we got to do something. It was like, yeah, we got to do something. So we started this thing. We just got to get up, stand up, and get out for democracy. So we started this thing to get um, well-known people in the yoga and dharma and mindfulness communities to make a statement, and they were all very willing. So we just wrote to a bunch of people, got a video made, and you know it wasn't like a massive big thing, but it started to network. 
get some talks out and I hope we can keep that alive going up to 2024 so it's this is one this is we can't lose this battle we can't lose it there's just no other option we can't the consequences are too devastating you know so if we feel we've been in a comfortable bubble which for some of us in this country particularly the the paler ones of us <laughs> you know we can't we can't lean into that anymore yeah it's it's we can't it's uh that time is gone time is gone so not that it should have ever been in the way it was anyhow but there's always this moment to wait whatever the past is that is doesn't mean to say we can't heal and work with the past we do that a lot in the dharma the ancestors there's a lot of unrest on that level to free to share blessing blessings is a daily practice to see what we carry from those old stories that we can release and to you know engage engage dharma in this time of both unveiling and to use this moment to see beneath the, the myths we've lived through, through the myths, to touch the real. And to recognize that business as usual is not where we can be anymore. Somehow we have to stop. We have to find ways to stop and change course, get back on track. So anyway, these are just my ponderings out loud of my inner ponderings <laughs> to share with you. Um, I do feel that having Sangha conversations around these themes to find what our values are, what we, where we find common ground, uh, to make connections with there are many communities that have been on front lines for many, many years and decades in ways that perhaps other communities haven't to get behind, to find, to become allies, to uh, get out in whatever way we can and to be curious, you know, to see it as part of our Dhamma Vijaya, our investigation of this world, to bring healing to bring the medicine of the Dharma. To bring a true evolution of the heart. It's sort of almost like nothing less is required. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think we can just do that from thinking about it. It's a, a way that we, we open ourselves to be guided by the Dharma, this living Dharma to hear the prompt from the, from the reality. This was said by a great, a great uh, realized being, Sagadatta, reality, reality comes in the form of the unexpected. So there, are, there is another player here called reality. <laughs> We humans think we've got the whole thing. We're certainly making an impact. 
but there's always room for the mysterious, for the unexpected, for the quantum shifts. We're just adding our weight into helping them arrive through opening our consciousness, opening our mind, allowing for the impossible, as Nelson Mandela said, it seems impossible until it's done. You know, there was a moment when apartheid, the fall of apartheid, ANC went for 100 years. We don't have that long, but, you know, it seems that's a long time against the colonial forces, against the apartheid regime, seemed very impossible. And the nearer it got to falling, the more violent the, the system got, which is one of the things that we can see now. The more threatened, the more it pushes back. And we're against a system that's had a lot of power for many, many centuries. So it's really digging in. But it's a it's certain way it's a paper tiger as well, has real powers. And we shouldn't let it scare us. We should we should let it encourage us. Our ancestors had courage. They really did, all of them, wherever they came from. Yeah. To get here. I actually feel quite moved when I came into Boston. Our ancestors, a lot of them, uh, grew up in an extended Irish family, so uh, quite a few of them are on those boats. But, you know, there are, call on them. Yeah, we need them now. So, actually, I, I found an old poem when I was looking through notes, which I realized I couldn't follow because I'm not really good at following notes anymore. Um, so I think I'm going to read you this old poem because it was based on this reality. The unexpected is the gift of reality. She is deeper intuition carrying the ace card. When she plays it to whatever outcome you will know, she always held the power. So soften your belly and relinquish it all. Be the silent space listening. As the orphans of consciousness trudged to your door, begging for a morsel of kindness. Don't be perfect. Instead, be seated in your heart and follow the wobble. However vulnerable you feel, be the arrow you are, moving to its mark. Okay, dear ones, let's just sit for a few moments. So, I'm really, really, really um, moved to be with you, to be with us, to be able to reflect on these themes. I'd like to, for us to share all blessings, wherever they're needed at this time, for the liberation of all. that we find courage, that we connect in our common refuge with a diamond-like heart, that we stand together for earth,
for the sacred web of life that we're part of for each other, for the future, for those who come after us, that they may have a future. Let us not give up hope for that future, regardless of what we're faced with. May we remember those that went before us and on whose shoulders we stand, who held the courage, who held the faith, who held the height, light, who held their hearts in any way they could. May we give them thanks, may they be released, and may all beings be free. Thank you everyone. I hope to see you again one of these days. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.